Good morning. If you guys can make your way back in, we are going to continue with our worship service. I'm Evie DeWitt, and I'm up here today as our finance director. Um, each month, we share with you the, the church finances, and we have a slide here today. It's in the e-news. Um, from our human perspective and planning, giving has been a little off. We never really know how to budget all this. Um, but if you'll go to the next slide, um, it's been consistent the first couple months. And um, But in God's goodness, I looked, we were at 169 thousand dollars in giving and um, in that same time period we were at one hundred sixty eight thousand dollars in expenses so God is better at this than we are and we need to trust him for his provision but we continue to thank you guys for your generosity and participation in that um, I do have a couple of announcements um, from that perspective um, many of you who have kids notice there's some changes going on downstairs the kids are in their new classrooms and um, we decided we wanted to be a part of that too, so we have a new classroom. The church office is going to move into the old Lions classroom downstairs. Um, we're formerly our church offices were here. We've been um, a couple different places in the past ten years, but we're coming back into the building, and we're excited about that. Um, we love the idea of connecting what we do Monday through Friday with what we do here on Sunday, and. Um, just using the building for a little more um, ministry purposes. Um, we, that we should be able to move in mid-October, and that will also free up some money either to put back into the building or to um, use in other ways for ministry. So we're excited about God's provision here in the building. Um, also, last month we were able to give some money to World Relief um, Rusty Pritchard is one of our elders who works with Tear Fund, and we worked with him to kind of figure out the best way to respond to the immediate needs of the Afghan refugees resettling in America. Uh, a couple of our local partners, Friends of Refugees and Ethne, and the other ones working in Clarkston, will come online here later as the families are able to resettle in Clarkston. But for now, World Relief is a way that we decided as a church to partner with the Afghans. And also we gave some money to the EPC fund that was set up for churches that are experiencing devastation from the hur recent hurricanes. So, but Taffany included both of those in the recent e-news. Um, I have the links for them if you have interest or are feeling God's call to participate in any of these current um, needs. Uh, we also have a lot of um, announcements in the back of the worship guide. Um, the service opportunity board is out there. If you haven't taken a chance to look at what the opportunities are, please do. Um, EHS is starting this week, which is an, a great study if you haven't done that, and there are a couple spaces still available. Um, the women's group is starting a new book study, and there is an online um, information session about confirmation class if you have children approaching that age group and want to learn more about that. Just check all this out at on our website or in the back of the worship guide. And again, most especially, we just thank you for your participation here at All Souls. In preparation for Stephen's message this morning, we're going to read from uh, the book of Revelation, chapter, starting at chapter 21, verse 1. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And skipping down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the, book of, in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Well, good morning. My name is Stephen. It's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here. I get to uh, lead our staff and our session, and we are in the fourth week of a vision series Uh, Chasing after what it is that we're doing together as followers of Jesus in this time and in this place. And we've summed this up by saying that we are practicing the way of Jesus together. Sorry, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. A couple weeks ago, I spoke on what practicing the way of Jesus looks like. It is being with Jesus, uh, being shaped in his likeness, and then being sent out to bear his likeness into the world. And Mike spoke last week that this is not something we do as a solo sport. It's something that we do together as a community, that we are shaped, we are formed together. And so this morning, I want to focus on the last part of that phrase, for the renewal of all things. 
Because if the end game is joining in God's work of making all things new, then that has everything to do with how we live in the present. Our view of the future, uh, whether that's you know, planning for a vacation or mapping out your career choices, how you care for your body, how you, you know, do anything else that affects how you view the present. But the future is kind of an unruly thing, right? It kind of refuses to stay neatly in its place. It's always kind of peeking back into the present. Everyone thinks about the future. It's part of what it means to be human. And the story of where you think life is headed has massive implications for what you do now. I uh, recently came across a story about the French composer Olivier Messiaen. Uh, in the winter of 1941, he was taken prisoner for being part of the French resistance, and he was interned at a concentration camp in Gerlitz, Germany. The conditions there were harsh, as you can imagine. His captors were, were brutal, they were cruel, and he poured himself into, during this time, reading the four Gospels and the book of Revelation. He was a follower of Jesus, and somehow he was filled with hope for the world right in the middle of hell on earth. Well, after a while, he realized that there were three other famous musicians in the camp with him, and so he found four instruments, a cello with a missing string, a beat-up violin, a weathered clarinet, and a piano that had keys that would stick together. And with these banged up instruments, he composed a piece of chamber music called Quartet for the End of Time. Uh, I listened to it as I was uh, preparing this week, and each movement is kind of drawn from the book of Revelation. It starts out with these furious kind of whirling rhythms, but then alongside them there is this vision of eternity that sings out in passages of otherworldly calm. The New Yorker later called it the most ethereally beautiful music of the 20th century. But this piece, it de debuted not in a concert hall to the Parisian elite, as you might have imagined, but right in the middle of Stalag 8A to hundreds of prisoners and guards who were huddled together in the freezing night. Uh, Messiaen later said that the cold was excruciating, the stalag buried under snow, the four performers played on broken down instruments, but never have I had an audience who listened with such rapt attention. Throughout history, it's the, the artists, the, the poets, and the musicians who help us dream of a different world. And just for a moment, they, they give us a glimpse of a reality that is already on its way, the hope that is already flooding in through the resurrection of Jesus, but not yet fully present in this world. And so Maceon wasn't just making art, he was composing hope, fixing the imagination on a future that was, that was more, more beautiful, more, more real, different than the pain and the suffering of the present. There is a long history of that throughout the Bible as well, describing the world not as it is, but as it is meant to be. And it's, it's summed up in the Hebrew word shalom. Some of the most you know, amazing, inspiring passages, not just in the Bible, but anywhere, come from the prophets who would call people to account for the reality of things not being the way that they're meant to be. 
And so they had these amazing passages where metaphors would, would, would stream out and, and they, they were just trying to describe, trying to just grope at the way things are supposed to be. And the thing is, this vision is remarkably consistent all throughout Scripture. Uh, if you take a look at this passage from Isaiah 65, uh, you'll hear echoes from what Jane read in Revelation about what shalom looks like. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people for joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Shalom is the place where sadness and pain and misery and injustice are all forgotten, where all these things are made new. John the Seer, who wrote the book of Revelation, your timing was perfect on that, by the way. I mean, that was awesome. He wrote the book of Revelation the same way that an artist is kind of painting a picture uh, of the future and the purpose toward which all things are heading. And he too found himself in harsh conditions. He was exiled on a deserted island. and He was writing to a people who were under the, the oppressive weight of Rome, straining for any glimpse of hope that they might find. And it belongs to this genre in the library of Scripture called apocalyptic, which is full of imagery and symbolism and metaphor and numerology. And so it's a picture not in the sense of a blueprint, but in the sense of a kind of visual poem. And I know when we hear the word apocalypse, right, we, you know, it conjures up images of robots or, or zombies, right, or, or uh, you know, alien invasion, uh, the human project becoming imperiled somehow. Uh, Catherine told me in the first service that, you know, they read Revelation at uh, her wedding. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, we think of like, you know, Thanos snapping his fingers, whatever it is. But the word simply means to reveal. And it comes from the first line of the book of Revelation, the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the best way that I can describe how apocalyptic functions in the pages of the Bible is its pastoral function. It, it is all about setting the present moment and all of its uncertainty and all of its anxiety in light of both the unseen realities of the future and the unseen realities of the present. It's telling a story about when things will all be made right. And so with this book, with this, this piece of art, this, this consummate piece of, of artistry, John has harnessed all of his creativity, all of his biblical knowledge, all the inspiration of the Spirit to offer to the scattered church a vision of a different world at the end of time. Because he knows more than anything what they need is hope. And a hope that's anchored in the reality of who Jesus is. It is a revelation of Jesus. And so whatever else the book of Revelation is about, it is first and foremost about Jesus. Pulling back the curtain to reveal more of who Jesus is and more of who we are as a people of the future in the present.
So what does this strange book at the end of the scriptures tell us about where the story is headed? Well, I mentioned a few weeks ago that somehow the dominant view at the, of the end of time is about God kind of pulling us out of the burning wreckage, about our leaving and, and going somewhere else, our souls becoming disconnected from our bodies and, and us going to a different place. But the story that the Bible tells from beginning to end is one of resurrection and renewal of God going to great lengths to be with his people, with his people in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, with his people in the incarnation of Jesus in the New Testament. And so too, at the end of the Bible, it is a story about God being with his people, bringing heaven into the world, being with a people who in their corner of the world have joined already in his mission to the whole world. There are a lot of things that stand out about the city, but there are three that stand out to me. It is new, it is urban, and it's holy. John puts it like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And of this new city, Jesus says, See, I am making all things new. Biblical scholar Eugene Boring points out that Jesus does not make all new things, but rather all things new. Let's just pause for a moment and feel sorry for the guy who teaches the Bible with a last name Boring. But in other words, this is about the return of Shalom to this world, this world that has been made new, the restoration of things back to their original intent, taking what is old and weathered and breathing new life to it. And so this means that there is continuity and discontinuity with the, this world and the world to come, that things will look similar but made new. We have some friends who uh, just finished renovating a house uh, you knock some things out, you, you take some things down to the studs, and you remake it. But when you're done, is it still the same house? Yes, but it's also somehow new. Or you think of the resurrection of Jesus after he appeared to his disciples. He's, it's the same Jesus, yet he's somehow transformed, the same body, the same ethnicity. His hands bear the, the, the scars of the cross, but Mary and the disciples, they don't recognize him at first. The idea is of a world that is made new, raised from ruin, purged from all that is evil, brought back to its original intent, and at the center of this city is God. It's a city. It's, it's more than just a place of buildings and homes. A city is a place of human activity, a place where, where labor, where, where art, where economic exchange, where cooperative civic engagement, where, where culture and complexity are the rule of the day. 
In John 21, 24 through 26, John describes how in the, the best of human culture is going to be brought into this place, this, this new city. There's a vision for being the best of who we are, the best of what we have. It's a place for the culmination of God's vision for this new multi-ethnic humanity undoing all of the divisions of culture, the end of racial and ethnic hostility, the webbing together of God and humans and all creation and justice and fulfillment and delight. But as much as it tells us about what is present in this new city, there's a whole lot more description about what will not be there. And that's because it's a place of God's holiness. It's a place where there's no more sea. Sounds strange, uh, but remember that John is an artist who's painting a picture. Uh, We've talked about this a little bit, but first century Jews were not a seafaring lot. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the the sea uh, symbolizes that place where everything that was unpredictable, the place where evil had its sway, the place where darkness dwells, the place where chaos rules, where anxiety and, and disorientation and destruction are let loose upon the world. Yesterday, we looked back uh, 20 years since 9-11. Everybody remembers how they felt that day. The disorientation, the anxiety, the, the feelings of vulnerability that were unleashed. It's one of those moments really clearly where we see how all the ways that shalom is violated in the world, that it's not the way things are supposed to be. And how much in our world is still disoriented, still in pain and grieving that we see today? Well, John is is fixing the imagination on a time when the ambient anxiety that just is all around us is calmed and where people live in a place of security. And because of that, there's no more tears. How many tears have you witnessed in the last 18 months? COVID, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, so much trauma, so much pain that's still ongoing. Loneliness and despair. Not just in the last 18 months, some of you have lost people, a parent, a spouse, a child. Some losses you never get over. A friend of mine took these pictures of trees that were burned over from the forest fires that were coming through near his home in California. And I think they kind of paint a picture of what deep grief is like. You, you never move on from it, but by God's grace, hopefully you find a way to grow in the midst of it. And of all that, he says, I will wipe those tears away. These bodies that are ruined by pain, these minds that are scarred by mental illness, these neurological pathways that get carved into unhealthy cycles, unhealthy stories about ourselves and about the world, souls marked by anxiety and guilt over things that we cannot change in our past, over relationships we cannot heal. In the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, it is the place of renewal where all the sad things come untrue. And maybe most significantly, there's no temple. 
For the original hearers, this would have been shocking because all ancient cities had temples and it was, like, it was the most important building in the city of Jerusalem. It was the center of the city. It was the place where the people went to meet God. And John is saying that there is no need for a temple because this is the place where God is with his people. The place is drenched with God's presence. Some of you with a more mystical bent maybe have experienced a glimpse of that. These, these places where you feel the nearness of God and the veil between heaven and earth feels thin. The Celts called them thin places, places where God's presence was so close. There's no need for a temple because God is with his people as near as their next breath. It's called a new heaven and a new earth because the dwelling places are separate. But in this new creation, they are one and the same. And here is the promise. God will be with and among God's people. So heaven's invasion of earth is not just about what happens when we die. It is about the rule and reign of God coming to restore all that is broken. The place where our deepest longings that God has planted into our hearts find their origin and their home. Citizenship in this heavenly city is this place where every broken thing somehow gets bent into better shape. Where all that has been laid waste by, by centuries of fraud and injustice and evil and hate and poverty and disease. All that is wrong is put to rights in a million different ways where every man, woman, child, rock, animal, and tree is brought into the reign and rule of God where we see each other face to face not simply as we are but as we appear in Jesus and where even these broken bodies that we have are transformed and renewed and made beautiful and it's glorious reality is better than anything that we can think of, better than anything we can imagine. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is what we are asking for. We are asking for God's renewal to take place, this, this reality where God is as near to us as our next breath. So what? <laughs> If that's the future, if that's the purpose and the meaning that we are headed to, what do we do in the meantime? Well, there's a lot to say about that. I will not try to say it all, I promise. But I, I just want to note that Jesus says, I am making all things new. He's not saying, I will make all things new. He's saying, I am actively at it. I am making all things new. The old order of things is passing away. And in Jesus, the new creation has started to already break into the world. That God, in the resurrection of Jesus, has planted a seed of eternity in the old soil of this broken world already. We live in between, where we've tasted a glimpse of eternity, but we're waiting for it to come in its full in the feast that awaits us. And because Jesus has raised from the dead, we get to experience eternity now. And because the Spirit of God is in us, we get to participate in Jesus making all things new right now. And so I put together this not-so-complicated diagram for those of you who are visual learners like me. We're here in between. We're at the front of the eclipse, but we know what's coming. Because as a citizen of 
heaven, as, a, as a somebody in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, you have all that you need to live eternity now. So I want to go just end briefly by going over just a couple of implications of this for us. And the first is that if we are part of the renewal of all things, then your work matters. Whatever you do, if it's an act of service to God, if it's an expression of love to others, then that is enough. Work is not just a means to an end. It is a good that shapes us. Pastor and writer Rich Velotis calls it our primary means of discipleship. And the reason for this is that God is envisioning this future city as a place where we get to, to reign with him. They will reign forever and ever. Revelation is full of this kind of royal language. This is just a sample of a few places where it appears. And so our hope is not just that Jesus will bring the reign and rule of the kingdom. It's that somehow that we are going to rule alongside. As Paul put it, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And so if God desires for us to be with Jesus, is shaping for us to be like Jesus, to bear his likeness out in the world. The reason for that is because God is looking for people to reign with him. The work that we do now is training for the future. Dallas Willard calls it training for reigning. Super cheesy, I know, but memorable. And so your work, whatever that is, it's your primary training ground to, to your apprenticeship to Jesus. We learn how to fight laziness with good work. We learn how to fight overwork with Sabbath. We learn how to handle things like money and sex and power, how to create technology that uplifts. If you are a supervisor, you learn how to manage others and not to be threatened by their voices, by their gifts, by the, the abilities that they bring, how to, how to lift up and bring out the abilities of others so that the person in your charge is not just a productivity machine but a soul with longings. Your work matters immensely because who you are will be carried over into the next age and who you become is what God enjoys the most about you and some of the work that we do will last revelation describes this the best of human culture the glory of the nations all streaming into the city and I love how the theologian Miroslav Volf interprets this he writes the the noble products of human ingenuity whatever is beautiful true and good in human cultures will be cleansed from impurity perfected and transfigured to become part of God's new creation they will form the building materials from which the glorified world will be made your work here matters because it orients you to the world that is to come in which all of the best work that you do will be made even better because God is near. Renewal reframes everything that we do. The ways that we care for creation, the ways that we care for our body, the way that we approach works of justice and mercy. If, if we're going to participate in God's renewal of all things, then we're going to be present in those places where renewal, where shalom are most absent. We're going to be there bearing witness to hope. 
I mean, one of the reasons that we partner with Friends of Refugees is exactly because of what you see on the news, these, these lives that have been disoriented and upended by the fact that things are not the way that they are meant to be. We pursue reconciliation now because we want to live into the reality of this city where all nations, where all tribes, where all ethnicities are at home worshiping together. According to N.T. Wright, what you do in the present by painting, by preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. I love that idea of building for God's kingdom because it reminds us that God is the one who does the building. God is the one who brings renewal. We just get to participate in it. But make no mistake, we are called to participate. I was watching a football game the other day. I was thinking about this. There's this kind of this particular game, it was just taking way too long to get started, and everybody was sitting off on the side of the field in the huddle. Um, and I was thinking, you know, when are they actually going to get into the game here? But, but imagine a football team said, yeah, we don't want to do that. Let's take the, the Falcons. They're playing the Eagles this afternoon, right? Imagine Matt Ryan saying, you know, I really love our huddles. We're all together. We get to encourage each other. You know, we get to like, you know, we know each other. We believe in each other. We stack hands. We get directions. It's great. It's the best. Leaving the huddle? Uh, This this game hurts. They're out there. They're trying to knock us down. They're They're trying to take us out. It's rough. There's a lot of pain out there. We don't have Julio Jones anymore. How about we just stay in the huddle? Let's, let's, let's enjoy the huddle. I mean, if the Falcons never left the huddle, what would their record be? Undefeated. <laughs> It'd probably be about close to what it was last season, though, right? <laughs> in, all, in all reality. <laughs> Huddles are good. But the point is not to be in the huddle. The point is to win the game. Followers of Jesus, we get confused about this sometimes. It's it's great to gather like this, but this is our huddle. This is not the game. And the measure of how good this is is not what happens in here, but what happens out there in your places of work, in the places where you neighbor, in the places where you you raise your families, where you seek justice, where you care for creation, where you, you have conversations with people who want to know more about Jesus. The world does not really care what happens in here. We, we gather, we worship, we encourage each other. We're renewed from knowing that we receive forgiveness from God. We're built up in Jesus so that we can be sent out to be part of what God is doing in the world. To be a follower of Jesus is to be an agent of renewal. Jesus found his disciples a week after he arose all huddled together behind a locked door. And he said, look, if you want to practice my way, you can't stay here. 
As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You meet me here, but it's so that you can go out and meet me out there in the world. We find Jesus in those places where renewal is needed the most. 1947, Harvard Divinity School invited Howard Thurman, who was this well-known pastor, theologian, scholar. He was the spiritual mentor of Martin Luther King Jr. And he was asked to give a series of lectures on spirituals in the black tradition. And it was this multi-day lecture series. Many of the songs focused on the, the future, on the heavenly city, the age to come. And of them, Thurman said, for these communities, heaven was as intensely real as the facts of their own experience. Here at last, they sang of a place where the slave was counted in and given dignity. Well, after the the lectures and the Q&A, one of the skeptical Harvard students raised his hand and said to him, Dr. Thurman, that's all great that the songs might have given them a better life, but isn't it a problem since no such life really exists? In other words, it's just a false hope. And Dr. Thurman, who is easily the smartest person in the room, smiled and said, Sir, if heaven isn't real, then truth isn't real. Then justice isn't real. Then hope is not real. He knew that these songs were born out of a living hope and that the ones who sang them were people of the future in the present. And from that place, it was not just coping with life as it was. It gave birth to a movement that led to freedom. We need artists and songwriters and poets and musicians who can coax beauty out of broken strings in the place where death is all around, but where the music claims the ground and says, no, this is not how things were meant to be. We sing of a day when there is no crying, where there is no death, where there is no despair, not to numb the present, but because we know of the reality of what the future is leading toward, where death and despair and pain are relics of the past so that we can become a people of the future, participating in God's work of renewal right now. And friends, that is why we come to the table each week, to be reminded of the story, to to have that foretaste of the heavenly feast that awaits when all nations, all tribes are gathered together around the throne of grace, singing praises to God. In this meal, God is present by the power of his Holy Spirit, ministering to us and casting our eyes forward to that day when we will thirst and hunger and weep no more. So friends, as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room, and after he'd given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is my blood, the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink all of you. So it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again.
Friends, we'll take communion uh, this morning one of two ways. There are, are elements in the back at a table. You can also come forward in two lines. I'm going to invite Mike to come forward in just a moment. But friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. The Spirit somehow is here. It is a mystery. And so let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come, all has been made ready.